Have you ever had to deal with something so brittle that you had to handle it with, like kid gloves, gingerly? Um, you know, it could be something that you're trying to keep alive so that you don't have to buy a new one, an old barbecue. Uh, it could be a relationship uh, that, has, that has been damaged and you're trying to re- reconcile and you're finding yourself being very careful of the words that you use. It could be, uh, it could be something else. Like, I thought uh, my daughter loves books. Abigail loves books. And I hijacked one of her books today. Um, this book is one of the oldest in our homes. This book is called Little Women. Have you heard of this book before? This book is uh, actually... I'm dropping everything. This book is actually from uh, the 1930s. And so uh, it, was, it was obviously used a lot, and you have to be very careful with it because it'll, it'll fall apart. But it's got brittle pages. They've all turned brown. Um, the cover's about to fall off, and uh, Abby threatened me that if I wrecked it, she would... You can't get many more of these. I mean, there's few and far of these uh, between. But this is... Uh, when, I, when, I, when I look at this book, I think, oh, it's so ancient. I wonder how many little hands have thumbed through these pages, you know? And when it was first written, probably quite a few, and... Now that it's older, it gets put on a shelf and it just kind of degrades and it becomes brittle to the touch. For some of us, our relationships that we have with other people, we might even describe in the same way. I wonder though, for some of us, when we talk about our relationship with God, how many of us would describe that in the same way? Here's what I mean by that. If your view of God is that if you disappoint Him to a certain degree, He'll finally have enough. He'll put you on the shelf, and that'll be it for you until he finds somebody to take your place. That is a very brittle view of God. It's kind of view of God that, uh, you know, you've got to almost walk on eggshells because you know that he will take it, but you don't know how much he will take. And if you drop the ball too much, maybe that will be the final straw, and God will move on to somebody else. Or maybe you're at a point in your life, and you're thinking to yourself, Craig, I feel like I've already crossed that point. I've already got to the point where I've made so many mistakes in my life or I've damaged so many different things with my relationships with others or my own relationship with, uh, or, or the things that I've invited into my own life that I think that God might be done with me now. You need to hear this message this morning. Abraham was in this very same spot. In fact, Abraham was about, and Sarai, more Sarai than Abraham, uh, but together, they're about to make some pretty drastically bad decisions. And God has promised them covenant. We've already talked about this. He'll, he'll make the covenant with them. He'll keep the covenant with them. We've talked about him going between the pieces. Did you like that last week? That's pretty amazing. He makes the covenant, keeps the covenant. He becomes a curse for us, does everything so that he can have a relationship with us. But today's message takes that even a step further. Because God will not only do everything he can to make a relationship with us, He'll do everything he can to keep that relationship with us, regardless of what we do. So I invite you to take your Bibles this morning. We're going to look at the chapter uh, in Genesis chapter uh, 16. Before we do that, let me me ask you a couple of questions just to kind of get our our brains in in gear this morning. Um, have you ever been, by the way, have you ever been in a relationship where you don't have to walk on eggshells? Have you ever been in a relationship where it doesn't matter what you did, you know that the other person would never, ever break their relationship off with you? 
that there's no deal breaker at all. If you've never had that kind of relationship, I kind of feel badly for you because those are the kind of relationships that are really few and far between. Sometimes we call them our best friends. They really know who we are. And when you're in that kind of relationship, the attitude that you feel when you're in that kind of relationship is like total freedom. You can be whoever you want to be, and the other, you know that the other person is going to accept you and love you, give you grace when you're a moron, love you when you do good things. You are always in their good graces. When you have that kind of relationship, there's a freedom that comes along with that. And uh, when you don't have that, it just becomes uh, an on-day-by-day challenge of walking on eggshells and hoping you get, don't get the other point, the other person to their tipping point. God has this kind of relationship with us. God has a relationship with us where literally you cannot disappoint God to the point where he will put you on the shelf and stop working with you any longer. Now, I know a lot of religions might teach differently than that, but that's why we call them religions. If you look in the Bible, you will find a God that is covenanted with his people and he will not leave them. In fact, from Genesis to Revelation, the theme of the Bible is that God pursues us so that he can keep us. And there's no breaking of that relationship. Let me put it in a different way. How many of you have not disappointed God? Anybody? Today? <laughs> yeah, today. <laughs> Let me ask you this way. What does God expect from us? Does he expect perfection? No, okay, he doesn't expect perfection. But does he expect like let's say 80% perfection. No, how about 50% perfection? Uh, how, about, how about 20% perfection? Does God expect that? Some religions will teach that God expects some amount of perfection, and if you can't deliver that kind of perfection, there's other things that you can do in order to make up for your loss. You can go to confession, you can, you can do these, crawl on broken glass, but if you do those things, it'll make up for the percentage that God's grace doesn't cover. Is it, could it possibly be true that God's grace covers all my imperfections? Is that crazy or what? The God of the Bible is nothing like a God that would hold grudges against us. Let me put it this way. God was 100% perfect so that you don't have to be. Amen. And that's the point. In fact, you should really tweet that out. God, is 100, God was 100% perfection so that we don't have to be. Galatians puts it this way in Galatians chapter 3. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? In other words, what he's saying is, is did you start your relationship with God based on all of the laws that you could possibly keep or hearing and believing in faith? And the answer is hearing and believing in faith, right? That's how you start a relationship with God. So he goes on. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being, what is the next word? Perfected, Perfected by the flesh. Paul is saying, don't you understand, you began this relationship with God where he's 100% perfect because you can't even get to 1%. So are you so foolish to think that after he begins this relationship with you, now you've got to make up, what, 5, 10, 20%? The point of the matter is that our ability to impress God never changes. The only thing that impresses the Father is the perfection of the Son. 
And when we accept Jesus as our Savior, we have the ability, because of Jesus Christ, to look more like Jesus Christ, but even then we won't get to 15, 20, 30%. And it, God does not have a scale in heaven and figure out how good we get, did get to and say, all right, I'll cover the rest of the bill. God has covered the whole bill. Everything from our past, present, and our future, God knows who you are, who you were, and who you will be. And if God has started a relationship with you, then God loves you because Jesus was 100% perfect, and God can love you through his perfection, through Jesus Christ. When God looks at you, he doesn't look at your imperfection. He looks at the perfection of Jesus Christ. That blows me away. Galatians puts it this way, you did nothing to get God. Why are you killing yourself in guilt to keep God? This is a lesson that Abraham is learning right now. Abraham and Sarah are about to do some pretty crazy things and drop the ball again. But Abraham and we are about to discover that God not only is a covenant maker, he is a covenant keeper. Here's the first point, would God cut me out? Galatians, uh, sorry, Genesis, Genesis 16 verse 1. Here we go. Now, Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. Now, in these days, that means Abraham and Sarai are having marital problems. Abraham is about 86 years old at this, 85 years old at this point. That means Sarai is in her late 70s. And Sarai has not borne Abraham any children, much less an heir, no children at all. Abraham, in his day, would be looked on as less of a man, and Sarai would be looked on as less than the, the bugs on your shoe. Because women are meant to bring children into a marriage. Sarai couldn't pull it off. And it's always the woman's fault. Sarai has lived with this guilt her whole life. She's well past uh, uh, childbearing years. She's lived with this guilt her whole life. All of a sudden, Abram comes to her and says, I have good news, sweetie. Here's the news. We are going to have a child. Now, Sarah's in her late 70s, and she's going, no way, that's possible. Abram, we, we need to sit down. I need to explain to you a little bit more of the birds and bees stuff, because you don't quite understand what it takes to have a child. We're past the point of no return. And Abram says to Sarah, okay, I get it, but I believe God, and you need to as well. And 10 years before is when they left Ur of the Chaldees. And 10 years before, when they got into the promised land, God says, I'm going to give you a nation from your own family. And Sarai listens to this and listens to this. And for 10 years, she's listened to this from Abram. But for 10 years, bupkis, nothing has happened. And she's thinking to herself, Abram might just be, yeah, crazy in the head, Right? God doesn't tell Abram the whole promise up front either. We know that he's slowly giving him piece by piece, piecemeal, of what this promise is going to mean to Sarai and Abraham. And so he keeps telling her in Genesis 12. He leaves. He says, sweetie, we've got to go to the land that God will show us. That's in Genesis 12. Genesis 15. He goes to Sarai and says, God spoke to me again. He said, here's the land that we're supposed to live in, and the offspring that we have is going to come from us. Genesis 16, 10 years pass. And Sarah begins to wonder if she's going to be involved at all. So, the end of verse 1 says, Sarah had a female Egyptian slave whose name was Hagar. Where did this slave come from? Egypt. When were they in Egypt? 
Remember the famine? They went down to Egypt, and apparently they went down there and they got food, but they also got a few other things. And one of those things was they bought a slave named Hagar. Hagar now was part of the family, traveling with them, a slave to Abram. She now had no say over her future. Where was, where was Hagar's home? It was in Egypt, and now she was with Abram and Sarai. Verse 2, And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me. Do you catch that? Does that sound like a content woman to you? Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant that it may, may, uh, that it may be that I shall obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now we're sitting here thinking to ourselves, oh, that sounds like a weird thing to do. This was commonplace in these days because the most important thing was to have children. And this was commonly done. You could use a slave that you had as a surrogate so that you could have children through them. And the way that it was done is when the child was born, the child was taken from the slave and given directly to the woman who was unable to bear children. And that child would be forever that woman's child. This was culturally acceptable. It was normal. It was a way of survival. There was legal responsibilities for doing this. This was under the law. This was very normal practice. Now, was it right? No. (laughs) Definitely not. But Sarai says some things that kind of catch my attention. The Lord has prevented me. She obviously is feeling a sense of resentment toward God. And so she comes up with a very common idea. It's been 10 years since Abram's been telling me I'm going to have a kid. I didn't believe him at the beginning. 10 years. 10 years. What were you doing 10 years ago? 10 years is a long time, right? 10 years. And all she can hear is her biological clock continue to tick. God's supposed to come through and he doesn't. So she is getting a little perturbed. She reminds me of Job's wife. Do you remember this woman? Did you catch that? Did you make that connection already with Job's wife? Remember Job, he goes through all of these these terrible things. He loses his home. He loses his income. He loses his farms. He loses his servants. He loses his kids. He loses his whole family, except for his wife. He's still got her. Then he loses his health. He's about to die. He cast him out because he's got this, this communicable disease He's laying on a garbage dump outside of the city, and his wife comes out and says, Job, man, you love the Lord, we get it. But you are miserable, and you're making me miserable. i got to cart food out here to you every single day. You look terrible. Why don't you just curse God and die? And Job wouldn't do it. Job said, naked I came in from the womb, naked I came from the womb, naked I'll return, but I still Bless the name of the Lord. Job did not listen to the voice of his wife. Abram, however, did. Sometimes God's promises take a long time to happen, don't you find? Does that get on your nerves? <laughs> yeah, Abram never saw the promise of the promised land. It says in Hebrews chapter 11 and 12, they, you know, all these people were working for the promise, but they never saw it. Here's the deal. Do you remember uh, Joseph? 
So Joseph is lied about by, you know, you know, granted he's telling stories to his brothers about how they're going to bow down to him and all this stuff, and that eventually is going to tick your siblings off. So they get ticked off to the point where they decide to beat him up and throw him in a pit. And then they realize what they've done, and they think, well, we can't take him back to dad like this. He's a mess. So, uh, so here comes along some Ishmaelites, aha, uh-huh. and, and they say, hey, let's sell Let's sell our brother to these guys. These guys collect slaves left and right. So they sell him to, to these uh, traveling brand, uh, band of marauders. And, and they take him away. They sell him in Egypt. He goes to Potiphar's house. Then this chick lies about him, right? She's a loose woman. She's married to, to, to uh, Potiphar, and, and he believes everything that she says. So he throws him into prison. He goes into prison. Uh, he spends years down there. He works himself up in the ranks of the prison. Guys come down. To, I know I'm telling this story really fast. Guys come down. They, he's able to interpret dreams. He interprets their dreams. They go back to the Pharaoh. One loses his life. One lives. And then he gets forgotten about in prison. And then finally, Pharaoh has a dream. needs somebody to interpret a dream. They get him out of prison. He interprets Pharaoh's dream. Bada bing, bada boom. He becomes second most important person in Egypt. Do you know how long it was since he was in the pit to the time that he became second most important in Egypt? 21 years. God takes a long time, doesn't he? Doesn't that tick you off sometimes? Here's the deal. Time can be the greatest challenge to faith. Because you may believe something today as strong as you possibly can, but the more, you, the more time that goes by, the more challenging it is to believe that this thing is actually going to happen. Jesus says this actually in Matthew chapter 7. Did you know that? He says, listen, here's the deal. You know that God has your best interests at heart. You know that God's going to take care of you. Name a verse. I mean, there's so many of them, right? God cares about you. God loves you. God has a future for you. God has a purpose for you being here, else you wouldn't be here. God sticks closer than a brother. There's no temptation that can overcome you. All of these different promises, all of these different truths. But for us, as time passes, it becomes very, very difficult to keep our feet firm on the rock. So Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, he says, listen, just do one thing for me. Look up. See these birds flying around? How do they stay alive? And you go, well, they eat. Who provides food for them to eat? The earth, Mother Earth. Okay. (laughs) Who provides food for them to eat? God does. He provides a water cycle. He provides the sunshine. He provides the growth. He provides, he provides the food for them. He says, so Jesus says to the, this crowd gathered for the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, if God provides for these little birds, how much more will he care for you? Amen. So he says, don't worry about what tomorrow will bring. Tomorrow is enough troubles of its own. Think about today and what you'll do today. And keep faith. So Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. Verse 3, after Abraham had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abraham's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as his wife. Again, this is legal. She's not becoming his wife, but she's doing a wifely deed so that he can have children. Sarai can't produce Sarai's bared the burdens of this for too, too long. Sarai finally figures out a way that Abram will stop telling him, her about these crazy, 
visions, voices that he's hearing about that are telling him he's going to have kids. Just get the deed done. Use Hagar. The child would be put into her arms and she would have her own child. This wasn't the best choice. It definitely didn't fit the promise scenario. But the clock is ticking. And the distance, the distance between promise and where Sarah and Abraham were currently was causing doubt in Sarah's heart. Abram's getting impatient. Can you imagine how this would be for Abram? Sarah's going, listen, another month has passed, nothing. I think you're crazy. Can you hear this? Ten years of this. When are we going to have a child? I don't know, sweetie, but we're going to have a child. I, I just believe that God will give us a child. Fine. Next month passes. Come on, we're not, we're not pregnant again. When are we going to have a child? I don't know, sweetie, but we're going to have a child. Sarai's getting impatient. Abraham's getting tired of listening to it. It's hard to wait on the Lord at times. You know, these wives. Eve said, just have a bite, Adam. <laughs> Sarai said, have my servant. Job's wife said, curse God and die. It's amazing that when you look at the, the, the challenge that, that these ladies had, it's understandable. But it always has to do with, okay, God said this would happen, or God promised this, or God said this, and it's not happening. And time causes this great impatience. So whose voice are you listening to? All the guys go, not my wife's anymore. I'm not listening to that anymore. <laughs> Well, you're obviously missing the point of the whole message here this morning. This was culturally the reasoning, reasonable thing to do. Culturally, it was acceptable, but before God, it was running ahead. All of these emotions from Sarai, all of these emotions from Abraham, all of these emotions from Hagar, all of them are completely understandable. But it caused them to do some pretty silly things. And so guess what happened? The inevitable thing. Conflict. Verse 4, and he went into Hagar and she conceived. Yippee, right? We should be doing cartwheels. But when she saw that she conceived, Hagar looked with contempt on her mistress. And so it gets worse. Now, put yourself in the shoes of Hagar here for a second. Hagar has been stolen from her home, she has no say about her future. She's been forced to go in to be with this 85-year-old man. She does, she, her, she's obviously of childbearing years. Her life is completely out of her hands. How would you feel if you were Hagar? This is completely unfair. So Hagar gets pregnant, and Hagar begins to look on Sarai with disdain. Why? Because Sarai has abused her to the worst way possible. Now she's going to have a child, and Sarai's going to steal her child. Can I understand Hagar's battle? How about Abram? Abram had been tempted by circumstances with the famine. He went down to Egypt. He dropped the ball there. Then he went back, and he got into a situation with relationships. He divided up the land because his people couldn't get along with Lot's people divided up the land, then the whole Sodom thing happened. That was a mistake. Then Abram was tempted by love for his brother over his own well-being, and he ends up going into battle to get Lot back. You remember that story? 
over and over and over again. I can, I can relate to Abram. I am just trying to do everything everybody wants me to do. I'm doing the best to keep this all held together. You want me to use Hagar? Fine. That's what people do nowadays. You don't want to believe God's going to come through with his promises with you? Fine. We'll use Hagar. God will come through with his promise with her. So Abraham listened to the voice of his wife instead of listening to the voice of God. And Sarai's battle I can completely understand as well. Sarai was disgraced from not having children her whole life. Can you imagine this lady? She is, she is in her early 70s. Abram comes to her and says, sweetie, I got the best news in the world. We're going to have a child. After not having a child for so many years, she's probably going, all right, I believe it. It's hard to believe, but I'm going to believe that. And so she goes out and tells her friends, and they tell their friends, and so on, and so on, and so on. Every party is like, God's going to give me a child. I'm going to have a child. And then the first year passes. And then she keeps having the parties. God's going to give me a child. I believe it. Abram said it. God said it to him. I believe it. And then another year passes. God's going to tell me, I'm going to have a child. And then another year passes. And then another year passes. And then another year passes. And 10 years pass. And I can imagine by this time, maybe her friends begin to look at her. Her relatives begin to look at her and say, Sarai, you're a little nuts in the head. It's time to wake up, sweetie. You're not going to have a child. They might even be mocking her behind her back. And so she gets tired of waiting, and she stops trusting God. And what happens when we stop trusting God? Just bad things, right? Just bad things. And it's interesting, when those bad things happen, when we stop trusting God, we take matters into our own hand, and bad things happen, who do we blame? (laughs) I know, we always do, right? Usually it goes, why would God do this to me? And sometimes the sin is our own, and the fault is our own bad choices. Verse 5, Sarah said to Abraham, May the wrong be done. May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, Hagar looks on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Words of joy or words of sadness, words of anger? What do you think? Sadness, anger, yeah. Hagar has ashamed me by getting pregnant. I couldn't. You, Abraham, have shamed me by having a relationship with you. As if my barrenness wasn't embarrassment enough, now you go and do all this. And Abram was treating Hagar with grace and love, with kindness. And that's not usually done either. In fact, Genesis 17 says that Abram loved Ishmael. He even told God not to worry about giving him a son through Sarai anymore. He loved Ishmael that much. Did you know when Abram died, the two people that buried him were Isaac and Ishmael? I think Abraham loved Hagar and loved Ishmael too. Verse 6, But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please, So then Sarai dealt harshly with her. And what makes people act so dumb? Their current situations caused them to doubt, and their doubt caused them to fear, and their fear made them do stupid things. So, does God give up on Abraham? Would God cut Abraham out? No, he doesn't, even after all this. But let's jump to Haggai for a second and say, could God... If God doesn't cut me out, could he forget about me? 
Verse 6, Sarai dealt harshly with Hagar, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, and the spring on the way to Shur. Do you know where Shur is? Probably don't. Shur is about halfway from where they were to Egypt. Hagar was running home. She was running back to Egypt. One of the most dangerous places in the world is in the middle of a desert for a pregnant woman, but she didn't care. She just wanted to go home, run away from these people. And you know who showed up to her? And I'll make this clear in just a moment. But the person who showed up to her in the middle of the wilderness was an angel of the Lord. When you see angel of the Lord in the Bible, it's almost assuredly the pre-incarnate person of Jesus Christ. I believe that Jesus showed himself. He hasn't been born of Mary. That's thousands of years into the future. But I think a form of Jesus showed up to love on um, uh, Hagar at this point. Look at verse 8. Look how he treats her. He said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Of course, he already knew. But he wants to get to the heart of the issue. So she said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. And Jesus always asks the impossible of us. Don't you feel like that? He always asks us to do the hard thing. It's almost always he never asks us to do the easy thing. Like, why didn't he say to Hagar, just keep on going to Shur. You'll find people that love you. you look like them. You'll, you, they'll welcome you back. They'll think Abram and Sarai were bad from the, stealing you away in the first place. So just go home. But he says, no, go back. Go back to the woman that made you do this. Go back to the man that did this to you. The angel of the Lord also said to her, now this is cool, verse 10, listen to this, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. You know why I think this was Jesus? Because he doesn't talk like an angel. What pronoun does he use? I. I. He doesn't say the Lord will. He doesn't say God will. He says, I will. I think this is Jesus talking to Haggai out of a heart of incredible love for what she has just gone through. And he says, listen, this is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to make of you a great nation. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Do you know what Ishmael means? It means God will hear. Every time she yelled out for Ishmael to come to dinner, she's reminded of the fact that God heard her. Ishmael, come to dinner. Oh, yeah. God hears. God hears. Verse 12. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand shall be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will dwell against his kinsmen. There's different ways that this could be seen. Um, one, he will be a free person. He will travel throughout the land. He will not be a slave, which is likely a big part of it because the Ishmaelites became traveling, a band of travelers. Um, and wild donkeys are seen as uncontrollable, as untamable, and sometimes violent. And so he's going to have a, a, a strong personality. Verse thirteen. So she called the name of, to the uh, sorry, sorry. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing, for she said, "Truly, here I have seen Him who looks after me." Don't you love that? I have seen Him who looks after me. That's again why I think she's looking into the face of Jesus. Therefore the land was called Birlaut Roy, which means the Lord God sees. I tell you, in a couple of chapters, there's going to Ishmael, of course, is born. He's about 14 years Isaac's senior. Isaac then is born also. 
And Ishmael was making fun of Isaac one day, just berating him like siblings do. And Sarai kicked Hagar out again, said, take your kid and get out. And so she has to go wandering through the desert. She does, with this little boy, 14 years old. And as they travel through, they lose water. They have no food, they have no water, and she thinks she's going to die. And so she sits down, she puts the boy under a bush, and she watches him and waits for him to die. (laughs) Isn't that sad? And God shows up to her again. And he gives her water. And he speaks to her such kindness. And he reminds her of this promise that he makes in Genesis 16. Remember I told you I was going to make of you a nation? I'm going to do it, and it's going to be through Ishmael. He says, God has heard the voice of your child when, when he meets up with her and the boy is under the bush and she's waiting for him to die and promises to make of her a great nation. Hagar, in fact, would be reminded numerous times that God would never forget her. Now listen, no matter how much she's been abused, no matter how much her background, she has no say over it, she has no, no certainty over her future, she didn't ask for this position in life, and you may feel like that as well. You may feel like life has got you in its grips and it's dragging you around like a lion drags a gazelle around and there ain't no standing up sometimes. Hagar. Hagar is a great reminder to us that even though we've been abused, even though we've been felt like maybe even torn apart by life, that God still has a reason for us to be here. Verse 15, Hagar, so Hagar bore Abram a son, Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. And that's the story of Hagar. So what? These two big things are our takeaway. Number one, we cannot make such bad mistakes that God would ever break his deal with us. You can never out-mistake God's grace. You can never out-sin God's rescue. You can never do it. If God began his relationship with you all on his grace and his perfection, he will continue his relationship with you. Now, you may make bad choices in life. And you may have to bear the consequences of those scars in life. But God will still use you. Number two. We can't be mistreated or broken to the point where God would be moved to break his deal with us. That's the story of Hagar. If you feel like you've been so mistreated or broken in life that God can't possibly use you anymore, Hagar needs to become your best friend here, your favorite passage in Scripture. God's relationship with you can never be described as brittle. You never have to treat your relationship with God like you're handling an ancient, worn-out book. You never have to treat God with ginger gloves. There's no actions you can do, no past experiences that you have gone through that would cause God to ever say, that is our deal breaker. You may have people in your life that have unspoken deal breakers. That's become such a common phrase these days, it almost makes me want to cry. Because if my friend has unspoken deal breakers, how deep is our relationship really? Relationships that are relationships like God has are relationships that don't have deal breakers. Number three, 
The enemy in Genesis 16 is doubt. Doubt feeds on time. You do dumb things, you believe dumb things. As time ticks on, you begin to doubt God's faithfulness. So you might be saying there and say, well, Craig, how long do I go before God puts me on the, on the side and decides to work with somebody else? I, there's no point. This is the other thing that amazes me about God. So he creates Adam and Eve, right? They don't have any kids. Eve messes up, gives the fruit to her husband. Adam messes up. Wouldn't that be a good point to start again? Like, let's just start again with some people that are a little more intelligent or a little less prone to temptation as Adam and Eve. Good point. To, you're only knocking off two people. Start again. Get two better people. Like, get two, two people that can at least reach, reach 20% of righteousness. Because these guys are failing at everything. And God did everything for them. He created the world for them. Look, I, literally, like, I look at my kids and I say, I'm giving you the world. Well, God literally gave the world to Adam and Eve. They had everything. And they wanted more. Why don't I just cut it off right there? Start with two fairly more intelligent people. But he doesn't. He still uses Adam and Eve. How about Noah? You know, that's a good time to start again. Most of the world is gone at that point. And he knows Noah's going to get drunk, and, he's gonna, and Ham's going to do that whole deal. And, you know, why not just get rid of all of that family and just start new there? You're only wiping off eight at that point. Start again with eight more new people. Don't even include in the Bible. Give them the same names. Noah, Ham, Sham, Japheth. Just start again. Nobody be any wiser for it. But these people are obviously not who we need to be starting a whole race with. But God, God saves Adam because God loves Adam. And God saves Eve because God loves Eve. And God saves Noah because God loves Noah. How about David? David. First real king. Saul was a king. Didn't do so well. God rips the kingdom from Saul, gives it to David. David. Oh, you know, remember David? He wrote songs his whole life, started off so well, and then blah, that one day, wandering around on the, top of the, on the top of the castle, he looks down and sees Bathsheba, and she's a real looker, and he starts thinking to himself, everybody's gone, I got no responsibilities, I'm the king. I'll, well, you know, go get Bathsheba and... Wouldn't it be great to just, okay, David, you, you, you blew it beyond belief. Now you're going to have a son. He's going to try and rip the kingdom from you. And your kids are going to, one's going to rape the other kid. It's going to get really nasty. Let's just get rid of David and start new there. Let's get another new king. Somebody better than David. Granted, David got like up to 40%. I'll give you that. But let's get somebody who can get even a little higher than that. But yet God salvages David and God salvages Adam, and God salvages Noah, and God salvages Abram, and God salvages me, and God salvages you. You are never going to match up to the person that you think you should match up in order to impress God. God is not impressed with our righteousness. He's impressed with our faith. When we live, we don't live according to the law. We don't live so that we don't tick God off every day. We live believing God is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without works, you can please God all you want. But without faith, that's what God looks for. Our faithfulness of God swings on the fact that he is covenanted with us. Let me give you this verse out of Galatians 3, verse 5. Does he who 
supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing by faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abram. Abram, Adam, Noah, David, they all lived in God's favor at times. And the promise to them stood. Even though they all dropped the ball, they all learned, you might reap what you sow, but God is never, ever finished with you, and he never, ever breaks covenant with you. You may still bear the scars of bad choices, but God is always there with you. Maybe you identify with Abram. At fault, always listening to the wrong voice. Instead of listening to his wife or working things out to make everyone happy, which he thought he was doing, he should have continued to wait on God. So maybe you identify with Abram. I'm always trying to do the right things, but I need to listen to God's voice first. Maybe that's for you. Maybe you identify with Sarai. At fault. She's at fault. Her lack of trust was due to her impatience with God. Maybe you're getting tired of others scoffing at you because you keep talking about the promises of God and you're a little out of the mainstream. So you begin to blame God instead of trusting God. Remember what Sarai said? The Lord has kept me from having children. Maybe you identify with Hagar, who's not at fault for anything. Taken advantage of through no fault of her own and has to live with consequences. No matter who you are or what your past has been like, God does not forget about you. And you can never fall out of God's grace. Hagar was given a great promise by God simply simply because her paths crossed with God's at a time God had planned. And if you belong to the Lord, it is only because he crossed his paths with you when you needed to hear him, his voice most. He has called you by grace. And he keeps you by grace. And he gives you a promise of a future because of his grace. The goal is not to have the right roots. It's to listen to the right voice and trust him. So who do you identify with? Which one of the three? 